Delta. Tube sock. Cottage cheese. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. Welcome to episode 65. I'm Chad. I'm Liz. And we are talking about The Way of Kings, a part of the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. In this episode, we are going to cover chapters 29 through 33 of The Way of Kings. That is correct. And next book club, we are going to cover chapters 34 through 40. Nice. That's right. I like it. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? So the spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read these books and read them several times. She knows all the spoils. I, however, have never read them, haven't read past chapter 33. So we will remain spoiler free up to chapter 33. Now, we will discuss things that are Cosmere relevant, assuming they do not give away any vital plot points for any of the Stormlight Archive books or any of the other books within the Cosmere. That's right. Chad is a Cosmergent, a Cosmere virgin. That is right. We want him to remain as unspoiled as possible. This is like freshman homecoming of the book club podcasts. (laughs) Just the way we like it. It's not a college kegger. Keep it in check, yo. So let's get into the chapters. Let's do it. All right. What did you think of this section overall? I enjoyed it. I I felt like there was some good stuff to start speculating on. I I am starting to wish things would move forward at more of of a brisk pace, but I did enjoy this. I felt like we got... I don't want to say answers, that feels like too strong of a word, but we got a little bit more that we could chew on without necessarily adding a lot of extra mystery. Yeah, that's a good assessment. So chapter 29, this chapter was called Errorgance. Error. Errorgance. In this chapter, we see Shalon growing in confidence as Yasna's ward. But the mystery surrounding her father's soulcaster deepens when she learns that her brothers have been visited by a secret organization asking for it to be returned to them. They bear a tattoo that matches the symbol their father's steward, Luesh, wore around his neck. She and Yasna are discussing scholarship and the murder of Yasna's father when they're interrupted by the king, Taravangian. He joins them for lunch and asks Shalon to draw his portrait. She happily complies, but she is shocked when halfway through her sketch, she finds herself drawing strange creatures standing in the room with them. So listening back to that reminds me of what I did enjoy about this section. Although we do have some more mystery thrown in there with the random people with the pictures on their faces or the symbols on their faces random mystery but for the most part if you go back through these chapters what you tend to find is there's an escalation of the tension so things sort of moving forward narratively to some degree not necessarily throwing more and more mystery upon it you know we're ratcheting up the stakes without throwing a smoke monster in unnecessarily 
Right, it's kind of cool. And if you have the paper version of the book, you can look at this easily. Uh, if you have your Kindle, you might have to scroll around. But the, one of the, I think it is the first illustration in the book is, I'm holding it up for Chad to see. Yep, yep. The symbol-headed creatures that Shalon drew. And they are creepy looking. They're creepy looking. So we also, with this chapter, began part three of the novel. We did. And as such, we have a different theme for the quotes at the beginning of the chapters. Yes, we do. So this one says, the ones of ash and fire who killed like a swarm, relentless before the heralds. And all of the quotes in this section sound like snippets from a scholar's work describing something, some kind of destructive being. Part three is also uh, called Dying is the name of the part. So, and it's interesting when you look at the names of the of the parts, there's, this is smack dab in the middle and there's a symmetry to them as well. And we know that the Alethi language especially is very symmetrical. So part one is called Above Silence. Part two is called The Illuminating Storms. Part three in the middle is called Dying. Part four is called Storms Illuminations. And part five is called The Silence Above. It's like a, you're shaking your head. Because it's too clever. It's too clever by too half. Too clever. Too cute, Mr. Sanderson. <laughs> so I just thought that was interesting to note. So what sort of happens here plot-wise, we've, we've given the summary, but I think, you know, a couple of big things happen. The first of which is that we get a sense that things back in Yakoved at, at um, Shalon's home are ramping up for the brothers. It, yeah, things are things are climbing, things are escalating quickly. They're running out of money. People are starting to get to catch on to them, and then we find out that there are some randos who don't seem all that random. They seem like they know what they're doing, who seem to know that their father's dead, know that they had a soul caster, and they want their soul caster back. Right, so we open this chapter in a conversation that Shalon is having with her brothers via Span Read, and... Span Read, brought to you by T-Mobile. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that, again, in this chapter, we see Nanbalat expressing his concern for Shalon and regret that she has to be doing it. You can tell the guilt that he is sending his little sister out is really eating him up. Little do they know that Shalon is, what Shalon is struggling with is enjoying being where she's at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, They also find out that Luesh, so now they have a new problem, okay? Luesh, their father's steward, was the one who knew how to use the soul caster. And he did. And he apparently died of apparently... Natural causes. <laughs> Quote. We'll call them natural-ish causes. Quote, natural causes, yeah. But he did die, and as soon as he died, then these this these Illuminati guys came along and adds the problem that now they all, not only do they have to steal the Soulcaster from one of the most powerful women in the country, they have to figure out how to use it. No big deal. It'll be fine, I'm sure. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I mean, you you have to feel for Shalon here. She spent her life locked in a room. Now they send her off to college for the first time and tell her they want her to fuck the professor and steal his Jaguar. 
and bring it back. That's basically it. Like, like I know we've never let you out of the house, but uh, go to Daytona Beach, <laughs> get really hammered, find some really cute guys, bring me back the key to their daddy's Beamer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> she is not prepared for this. But she seems, she's doing well, you know. She seems to, though I think that Yasna's already keyed into the idea. Like, I'm reading through this the first time, and we get to the end of the section, you know, we, we realize that Yasna is keyed into the idea of someone to steal her soul caster. But here in the beginning of this chapter, I'm like, she already, she already suspects people. She's very careful. She locks it away. Like, she she is really watching that thing like a hawk. So there's something we already know is a terrible idea, and then we have Yasna being keyed into it, anticipating something like this happening. We have what's going on with the brothers. We have these rando, mysterious people showing up. And then at the end of this chapter, we get this other completely random mystery thrown into it on top of it. This is my favorite chapter of the section overall. Just a nice mystery salad. It is, yeah. So after Shalon has a conversation with her brothers, she has a conversation with Yasna and they talk about scholarship in general, but we see Yasna really kind of guiding her as far as how and when she should express her wittiness. And Shalon has been raised by these very, very strict tutors who were always pretty much sit in the corner be ladylike children should be seen and not heard Mm -hmm. and and that's not how yasna is yasna wants her to stop apologizing for being smart and stop apologizing for being witty but to channel her intelligence and use it at the proper time and i really dig the growing relationship between Mm -hmm. them you know we see yasna's walls come down a little bit you can tell she likes shalon she jokes around with her you know, she calls her a smart-lipped reprobate. And, yeah, she uh, tells her she got to brush up on a rose game. Yeah. <laughs> Go watch some Jeffrey Ross. And it was it struck me in reading this chapter that Brandon Sanderson was a professor. And there's definitely a deliberate message here about teaching and teaching styles. And, you know, we see Yasna motivating Shalon to learn by showing her the usefulness of the information she's asking her to look for versus what we know about Shalon's old tutors who basically just drilled information into her and asked her to memorize things. So I thought that was interesting. One of the things I also liked about that is I think it's very telling from a world-building standpoint. You have Yasna who says, Quote, a woman's mind is her most precious weapon. Now compare this to Cersei Lannister, queen of Westeros, saying, tears are a woman's weapon. Your best one is between your legs. Dang, that is a good comparison. And what that says about the worlds and how women are treated in it, how, you know, what's valued in that society. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's a really interesting way to explore, and we've talked about this before, the importance of literacy and how just this one change in a societal structure makes it, can make such a huge difference. Absolutely. So there's a couple, a couple of things here. So we have the brothers trying to describe the weird symbol that Luesh 
and the other Illuminati dudes are wearing as this complicated three triangle type, you know, interwoven pattern, right? And then that's how we start the chapter. We end the chapter with Shalon drawing these people who have weird symbols on their faces. So it leads me to believe that you don't bookend a chapter with two weird symbol drawing type things if there's not if they're not somehow related. Now it could be a red herring, but it seems more likely to me that one of two things happen. Either she's drawing those symbols because she's preoccupied with what her brothers told her and she's getting some sort of weird like cognitive interference that's overlaying over top of what she's drawing or more likely what I believe given this is a fantasy book this is some sort of a metaphysical vision not too dissimilar from what Dalinar is doing because it just sort of pops into her brain she doesn't even really realize it's going on but I feel like those two things can't help but be related given where they show up in the text that's an interesting theory. We will have to revisit that. We will. At some point. Now, I do have I have two questions. First, why would Shalon not show the drawing to Yasna? I get not showing it to the king because why would you and it's a, such such a weird thing and why would you want to have to explain that in front of the king better off to do what she did. But as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, all right, as soon as the king's gone, you would think she would show it to Yasna, who is much more worldly, might have an opportunity of, of recognizing the symbols or knowing what it is. Well, and it's interesting to explore the, the level of trust that Shalon has and, and also at the same time does not have with Yasna. Mm-hmm. Because her she raises the question to her brothers, what do you think about just asking her for help. And they were like, do you really think she would help us? And she's like, "Uh, you know what? Probably not. So she's already got this wall up where she's accustomed to lying to her already. It's interesting in the book when she, she's so startled when she draws these creatures that she instinctively clutches the paper to her chest and crumples it. And I think with that motion, she kind of set her path that she was going to keep this to herself because it was just, kind of too weird she's lied mm-hmm. about so much already yeah i would guess that would be why the other question i have is going back to the prologue after seth kills gavilar and the parshendi are all there partying it up how did the parshendi escape they just booked it like hell man they're like when you see the dude in white walk through the party that means five zero. You got to run. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, and it wasn't until afterwards that they realized that the Parshendi had sent Seth. True. Yeah, the Parshendi didn't take credit until after everything was over. Yeah, I mean, Seth told Gavilar where he was coming from, but it's right, not like he told he, everybody else. He croaked. Yeah. You yeah, know. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's a good question. Keep that ticker going. I'm trying, trying. So I picked up a couple of world building notes here. Again, we see the male and female dining with when Taravangian joins Yasna and Shalon for lunch. They eat different kinds of food, but they don't 
have to sit up. I mean, they sit at separate tables, but they're still kind of sitting and chatting because yeah. Taravangian is not one to stand on ceremony or overly formal. You know, he seems mm. a, a very down to earth and is described as being almost simple minded. I thought it was interesting that they said he's not an idiot, but in light eyed politics, being only average was a disadvantage. They also mention Varys, the assistant chief of collections. <laughs> I just wondered if he's a bald headed eunuch as well. And maybe perhaps, perhaps he is. They also mentioned something in passing called honor blades and the dawn shards as something that is worth seeking, but with great caution. So again, I, th- I've, I feel like honor blades have been mentioned before just here and there. That's mm, I don't know if they've been mentioned before. It has been mentioned that the heralds had something other than shard blades, that they right. weren't shard blades, that they were some predecessor or next level up or something, but not the exact same thing. And there's a couple of important themes that get touched on in this chapter. We talked a little bit about the scholarship and teaching as a theme, but also Brandon Sanderson really gets into the idea of faith and humanism and moral relativism and not even subtly. He just, it's, it's just right out there in Taravangian's conversation with Shalon and Yasna. And in particular, he's questioning Yasna about her atheism. He asks, also asks her outright about her soul caster. Where'd you get it from? No, but where'd you get it from? <laughs> So it's interesting because I think the discussion of morality and the human will that they have, it's an interesting development of a thread that's been running through the novel, beginning with the heralds abandoning their destinies. Mm-hmm. That's, the book opens on that, the idea of them making a choice to walk away from the path that was set in stone before them. It seems like this is a really important theme in this book. But then we get these creepy creatures showing up out of nowhere. These weirdo symbol faces. It's the silence. The the silence? You didn't watch that. You didn't watch that far into Doctor Who with me. That was a Doctor Who. There were these creatures that if you saw them, you would instantly forget them. I remember that. You remember that? So they would write on their yeah, skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that episode. That was a creepy episode. Maybe it's the silence. Oh my god. Maybe maybe Vangian isn't simple. Maybe he just keeps forgetting everything. <laughs> Well, that's all I had for chapter 29. You have any more notes for that? No, I'm good. Chapter 30 is called Darkness Unseen. In this chapter, Kaladin has finally won over the bridgemen with his stew and relentless badgering. They begin to practice carrying the bridge on its side in hopes that they may be able to use it as a shield. Not realizing the purpose behind the side carry, Gaz encourages it, hoping it will get Kaladin killed in battle. So it's interesting because we get a little bit of a point of view section from Gaz. Yeah, for the first time. And we learn that he is being, it looks like he's being blackmailed by Lamoral. It does look that way, or he at least certainly owns owes him money. Yeah, well, I thought, I thought Lamoral had said something to the, to the effect of pay me my money or I'm telling people. Well, Gaz says, you're lucky you're getting this from me. And Lamoral says, you're lucky I'm keeping my mouth shut. So uh, okay. it does. It certainly does indicate that it sounds like he's being blackmailed, which it would explain his 
money troubles Correct, and his yeah. willingness to take Kaladin's small bribes. And it makes him, this little section makes him oddly sympathetic because it talks about how the impact of missing an eye has on him and how he's this paranoia of always feeling like there's someone lurking just out of sight. Also, how much he's in an impossible situation. Right. With Lamoral. You know, this guy's like, do this, do that. If you don't make me happy, I'm going to make you, a, uh, put you on a bridge crew. Right. And we realize that Kaladin is not that much farther below Gaz and that Gaz is really only kind of one false step away from getting made a bridgeman himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that certainly drives his kind of fear-based reactions to them. We also see Kaladin emerging as a solid leader with Teft and Rock as his lieutenants. Yeah, that's pretty much all my notes. I thought it was something interesting that Syl says. She mentions something makes an observation about someone and, and Kaladin tells her she's begin, becoming more astute and becoming better at dis- noticing things about people. And she says that she feels more like she's remembering things that she already knew once. Yeah, I highlighted that as well. Don't really know what it means other than maybe she's tapping into some greater consciousness that's always been there and she's just learning how to recall it as opposed to actually learning things that's interesting and it deepens the mystery of the spren for sure we also find out that kaladin has survived a dozen bridge runs and that makes him one of the most experienced bridgemen ever so again the idea that they they bring these men in and not all of them are slaves some of them are just poor and willing to take any kind of job and they tell them that if they survive 100 bridge runs, they'll be set free or they'll be set up with a, a guard post job. It just makes you realize how ridiculous that is. Yeah, no way. You ain't going to survive 100 bridge runs. So chapter 31 is called Beneath the Skin. And it's a flashback to, to Kaladin's childhood where things are not going well for Kaladin and his family. Uh, the new city lord, Roshon, that we've met recently is really pissed about... Liren inheriting the city lord's spheres. He told the townspeople to stop paying for Liren's services, and they did. They even go so far as to form a midnight mob and demand the spheres back. The mob melts away in shame when Liren literally shines the light on them, but it seems certain that this is not the end of the family's troubles. So we start off with Liren. He's he's in like a maudlin drunk, and he's telling Kaladin not to repeat his mistakes. And that he regrets getting sucked into this tiny backwater foolish town. Yep. He's listening to Pink Floyd's The Final Cut. He's kicked the dog. (laughs) Wondering whatever did happen to the post-war dream. He's not in a good place is what you're saying. No, he's not. He's (laughs) not in a good place for sure. So I only have a couple of notes here. The first being that we have another reference to TN and him bringing in stones where he sees something special in them that nobody else seems to be able to see. So this, and in our last section, we had, once again, more observations from Seth about stone, and it's becoming more and more clear to me that there's some sort of magical, metaphysical relationship with stone 
don't know what it is. It's a good observation. I mean, gems are essentially just stone. They're just very particular types of stones. So it makes sense when you think about it in those terms, but I don't feel like we have nearly enough evidence at this point to draw any conclusion about what it is, but it doesn't keep getting brought up for no reason. That's a good observation. So that's my that's my first observation. My second observation is how everything went with the guys who come to steal the spheres. And I think this is a decidedly Brandon Sanderson thing that would happen, in my opinion. I'm just getting a, mm-hmm. a sense of what his writing style is like. And it's like, there's tension, there's a knock at the door. Oh no, what could it possibly be? It's a bunch of bumbling townspeople come to steal our stuff. How do we deal with them? We shine a light on their hypocrisy. We literally shine a light on them. And they say, you've seen right through me. And they all run off in shame, faux defeated. <laughs> and I can't, I can't help but think if this had been written by, say, George R.R. R. Martin, it would have ended differently. In the middle of the conflict, Rashon would have shown up and he would have ordered them to assault them. At some point in the process, one of the townsfolks would have accidentally scratched Rashon, which would have caused Rashon to then hang Cal's father for daring to cut him in some way, even though he didn't. He would have done it in front of Kaladin. Everybody else would have died, including his mother, except for Kaladin and Tien. They would have ran off, and in the escape process, Tien would have scratched his ankle on something and died a week later in the woods from infection. I mean, no one got raped in that recap, but other than that, I would say you're (laughs) spot on. Well, I'm sorry. I heard their mother was there (laughs) asleep. She clearly would have been raped in the process. Clearly. If this had been a George R. R. Martin, I didn't feel book. like I needed to say that. It, it is you, Brandon Sanderson is a much more earnest writer. I <laughs> shine my light upon thee. Definitely the the I would say epic, non grim dark. There's an opposite of grim dark. I think there is actually. I just heard this. Really, it's 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 called noble bright fantasy. Well, this is very noble bright this fantasy. Is, this is noble bright fantasy. This is definitely this noble is bright not, fantasy. I mean, there's there's dying and killing but it's not it's not and depression it's hard to say what is different about it (laughs) come how could you draw the blood of one of your own i shine my light upon thee but it's it's not um it's that sense of like dirty hopelessness in the grim dark writing that's not in this style of writing well what's interesting to me about it and i think what caused me to go down that road is prior to them knocking on the door, they're having this conversation, and Kaladin's father is like, they do what he says because he makes them feel terrible. So they do everything, and, you know, they do everything to make him happy, talking about Rashon. And Kaladin's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. He's like, that's just the way it is. That's just the way of the world. You know, talking about how people do things that are cruel and needless and cause all kinds of pain and discomfort, do not bond together. Talking about some of the darkness of humanity, but 
only just dipping a toe in that puddle. Just dipping a toe in it and then right up out of it. Whereas I think a grimdark digs into that, goes into the deep end, rolls in the weeds of that, and sits in it. You know, it's that cruelty of man against man that I think Grimdark just wants to stew in. And we don't we don't really get that. We touch on it. We acknowledge that it exists, but then we move on. I agree with your assessment overall. I think Liren, his message in this chapter, I, I don't quite agree with that interpretation of mm-hmm. it. Um, what he So what he says to Kaladin, and, and what I think Kaladin's mother also says that to him too, keeps saying, they're not bad people. They're just being manipulated or they're not, they just don't have the intelligence. And ignorance is a huge theme and that's touched on in this chapter. That's true. And so when Liren says to Kaladin, when men perceive the world as being right, we're content. But if we see a hole, a deficiency, we scramble to fill it. So that's what he's saying is going on with these people. As as upset and angry as he is with them, you know, he's saying they're not bad people. They're just, Roshon came in and is treating them like dirt. So they're scrambling to please him because they feel like, you know, the city lord is supposed to be their security. He's supposed to be there, you know, if he he's the one who's making them safe. And so if he's not happy, everyone's scrambling to make him happy. So... So you're right. It's not like they're dipping a toe in the cruelty of man against man. It's like they're waving their hand over the puddle. Exactly. <laughs> it's not that that it wasn't even what he was saying. And then yeah. showing that that the townspeople aren't actually willing to in the light of day or stormlight from a goblet of spheres enact violence upon this family that's lived among them their whole lives. Yeah, it, it, certainly in a different style of fantasy, there would have been people in that town who would have been willing to go there, but not in this one. Well, and they don't they they don't all have to be that nasty and cruel. Like I, I'm glad they aren't, but it's just showing some of the differences of the worlds and the world building and writing styles. Well, it's certainly very different from the last series that we read in the gentleman bastards, I wouldn't yeah. call that grim dark, but it certainly was a much more ugly and harsh and a violent world for sure than what we're in right now. Absolutely. I, I mean, for me, I can only read so much grim dark fantasy at a time. It's like post apocalypse, post apocalypse literature. I can only read so much of that at a time before I'm just like, everything's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> It's good that we have a Brandon Sanderson and yes. a George R. R. Martin. Then I just need I just need a Brandon Sanderson where I'm like, okay, maybe people aren't total crap. <laughs> so the big question I think we're left with at the end of this chapter is, and it's touched on in the chapter, why doesn't the family leave? So it's touched on when Liren, it's mentioned that Liren has written to the the, the pe- hospital? The, the hospital at Carbrand and asked yeah. if Kaladin can come take his admittance test early and they said no. So that's why they haven't just sent him. Okay. But the, the big question is why are they still there? Why haven't they just left and moved to another town? I didn't think they had the option because of the feudalistic society. Oh, but wasn't there something highlighted that as a member of the second non they, they have had the that right of, tra- no, of right. travel. Yeah. 
So that's just an interesting question. I think a couple people have raised it as well. Why at this point haven't they just left? Hmm. So chapter 32 is called Side Carry. In chapter 32, Bridge Four practices the side carry. A new batch of slaves arrives for, for recruitment, and Kaladin picks for th- his team a one-armed Herdazian named the Lopin. The Lopin barely has a few minutes to adjust when the crew is called to go on a bridge run. Bridge Four uses the side carry in battle with great success for themselves. However, the change in tactics completely hoses the rest of the campaign, and Kaladin is in big, big trouble. So the quote at the beginning of this chapter says, They lived high atop a place no man could reach, but all could visit. The tower city itself, crafted by the hand of no man. Followed by a battle at the tower. It's like the Voidbringers are from there or something. It's like they might be. It's like they might be from there. Right. So, um, can we talk about the Lopin? Let's talk about the Lopin. That's all hey, I have to gone. say. Hey, gone. <laughs> Think you want to pick me, son? <laughs> it's like he's from Louisiana or something. I- I'll tell you, if I had to choose one person in the Stormlight Archive to hang out with, it might be the Lopin. I might be with you on that. <laughs> so, we also see in this chapter how much power and influence Kaladin has over Gaz. We see him having Gaz, we see him making Gaz back down yet again when he starts practicing this side carry. And at first, Gaz isn't going to allow Bridge 4 to get any new members and Kaladin kind of butts up to him and, and Gaz backs right down. So it just really highlights how Gaz is like one step away from disaster and really there's a lot that Kaladin could do to to push him over that edge yeah he's being pushed from two ends between Lamarill and Kaladin he's he's in a shitty spot there's no I mean there's no two ways around it we also see Kaladin's behavior being shaped by what he thinks Syl's opinion of it will be correct yes at one point he's considering saying something that's not an outright lie but he's just going to agree with someone else's wrong impression. And he stops and says, uh, he, he didn't, he didn't end up agreeing because he still would probably wouldn't like it. So again, this is, she's literally becoming his external conscience. Hmm, yeah. it's a good point. So I really only have a couple of notes here. One that they are raiding the tower, the tower, the tower, which We've heard many references to and how over the six years they've only raided the tower 27 times. It doesn't seem like they're actually attempting to breach the tower. It's simply that there's a gem heart. Yes. And it's just that no Alethi force has ever won a gem heart there. Ah, okay. They've never been able to to beat the Parshendi on that plateau. And here we have Sadius making another attempt. It does not appear to be one coordinated with other high princes, so it's just another one that Sadius is going after. Just sort of interesting that it pops up after we've learned all this about it. Uh, And I don't know. I don't know that it means anything at this point, but it does make the comparison to what comes, as you said, in the um, 
what's the word for that little snippet that comes before the chapter? The snapter. The snapter. I just made that up. You well, it's it's brilliant, and we're going with it. <laughs> so the snapter. So it, it highlights that, um, you know, and reflects that. Hey, remember the tower? The tower. You've heard of the tower, right? Remember the tower. So it gets us to start thinking about it. And those snapters seem to obviously be about the void bringers. <laughs> and they snap my attention right to it. So the second one is that back in our first episode that we did on the Way of Kings, the first chapter we had with Kaladin, we have him in a a battle where they're supposed to draw like a shield wall up and he takes his squad runs out ahead of everybody crosses in front of the line picks this one isolated little spot and builds his own little defensive stand completely separate from the rest of what was going on you know tactically in that battle right and then everybody else in the battle gets their rear ends kicked Kaladin Stormblast seems to make it through. And I even complained, albeit briefly, about it because I thought, okay, well, that to me seems like a really foolish thing to do in an organized battle like that. But I don't know that Brandon Sanderson's trying to make a point of that. He could just be talking about, oh, look how bright this guy, smart this guy is. Uh, But no, we find out it comes back around. This is precisely the type of behavior that is going to cause all kinds of extra people to die. And it was probably causing people to die back then. Well, it's actually addressed in the that earlier chapter. It was it? Okay. It, it was. And it's mentioned that in a more disciplined force that that kind of behavior would be harmful. But mm. because this line is going to break, like Kaladin knew that the men who were fighting there were subpar and untrained Mm -hmm. so they weren't going to carry out the planned battle anyway and it's because i i believe the it through the eyes of the newcomer he says something like aren't we supposed to stay in this line and someone's like oh this line's not going to last past 30 seconds you know it's going to buckle in a second so we're just going to go do our own thing and that is how kaladin is used to fighting and that is the tactic that he puts in place here with disastrous results for the rest of the army now this is different however because it to me it does not one i don't think I don't think Kaladin owes Sadius a damn thing. Well, obviously. And two, it's not as though he would be apprised of what the tactics are. How would he know? He doesn't know what the game plan is. So how would he know not to do what he did? Right. There's certainly no blame here. Although Kaladin does kick himself and say, you know, that he should have thought about how his team's tactics were going to affect everyone else but he just didn't well and i agree with his assessment to one point not that he should be somehow aligned with the the alethi goals but that when he is when he can easily be made a scapegoat and killed then yeah he should probably be a little bit more careful about making waves and that's what that's exactly what we see here at the end of the chapter. Yeah, he gets his butt stomped. 
But he is able to convince Lamoral and Gaz to leave him alive because he points out that everyone saw that Lamoral and Gaz had a chance to stop him from using the side carry and that they allowed him to, to do it anyway. They were hoping it would get him killed. It got a whole bunch of other people killed instead. So he points out that if they kill him, it's going to look like it was their idea and they killed him to cover it up. But if he stays alive, he can testify that they didn't know anything about it. So we also see Kaladin, again, having one of these strange bursts of strength and euphoria, wherein he 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 almost feels like he's carrying the bridge himself and guiding the bridge himself. And then at the end, when the, the soldiers are beating him, his pouch of spheres is drained of stormlight. Yeah, I feel as though, uh, just like Kaladin, as though I too have been beat on the head with a bag of spheres telling me this guy has some sort of weird magical thing where he draws some power from Stormlight. Okay. Let's advance that somehow. Mm-hmm. You're ready? You're ready for that to... Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I was ready for that two times ago. <laughs> ready to move on. Well, Kaladin wasn't ready to move on, okay? Well, clearly he's not. Did you, did you think about that? I'm not here. To, I don't care think about Kaladin. Kaladin's needs. No, not here to think about. He's Kaladin's in his process. Needs. All right. I owe, don't owe Kaladin a damn thing. <laughs> so thematic stuff that I picked up in this chapter. Lopin says to Kaladin, when Kaladin asks why he wanted to be on his bridge crew, he says, "I've got a good feeling about you. It's in your eyes, Gancho." And I thought that was a really meaningful comment. And we've got this society where leadership is determined by eye color and Kaladin's eyes are brown. But to say, like, I've got a good feeling about you, something in your eyes, it's a nice metaphor. I don't know. Is that a metaphor? No, but that's okay. It's a nice something that a smarter person would know the word for. That's fine. It's a something. It's a nice comment. Thought that was cool. Nice. Foreshadowing, perhaps. Foreshadowing. That's it. You're smart. I like you. We call ourselves a literary podcast. <laughs> we should do we? <laughs> well, <laughs> ish. We've pretended to be at times. Literary ish. Yeah. <laughs> Another quote I wrote down is this one. The key to fighting isn't lack of passion. It's controlled passion. Care about winning and care about the people that depend on you. So that was a very defining moment for Kaladin when he decides that he's he's caring about the Bridgeman. And he has this thought again as he's sucking in the stormlight, which is what we're assuming is happening and swinging this bridge around in the side. Well, it's carry. definitely what's happening. I mean... I mean, uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious. I mean, here's the thing about, about that. I don't think it's supposed to be like a surprise like a like whenever Kaladin kind of comes into his full power Kaladin storm blessed gets his full storm power I, I don't feel as though that's a moment where we should all all be going oh my god where did that come from no no you no know, this is yeah. not a not a reader surprise moment for Co- sure correct yeah we should be able to draw that conclusion it's not very it's not veiled you know so I don't think there's any problem with us saying yeah, he's clearly has some sort of st- storm light magic that we don't we don't fully understand. Whether that means he's going to become a full, 
you know, surge binder, I don't know, but again, I saw a guy get surge bound once. Did you? Yeah, I did. He was, if you sit on a couch for 48 straight hours over a weekend with a bottle of surge in between your legs, it will eventually grow (laughs) into the very fabric of your skin and the couch and you will be surge bound. That sounds very uncomfortable. It was rough. It was rough. I'm not going to lie. But it wasn't me, so whatever. You know, it's interesting because this series, it's definitely a slow burn series. I mean, we yeah, are here it is. 500 pages in, and we're still really just setting things up. Most books are over. Most books are well over by this point. But we are, it, it, the, the pins are still slowly just being set into place here. So Which, I think going into this series, you definitely have to be prepared for that. What's crazy about that to me is that although we have a big, mysterious world, the cast is relatively small. In other other books that we've read, you can sort of understand it taking longer to set up because there's so many people in the cast and they all have different parts to play. We don't have that going on here. We do have a big complicated world, however. And I think that's more of what is taking a long time and also why it feels like there's so many weird mysteries being dropped. Mm -hmm. Because I also sort of feel like if all these mysteries were being dropped against a small or a larger sub set of people, a, mm-hmm. a bigger cast, it wouldn't feel as much like lost. Like we're on right. an island with a handful of people. And, oh, and look at all the random spooky things that happen. Mm-hmm. But it's just sort of where we are right now. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a good assessment. I think too in this book, there there's a lot more slow character development there's a lot of just internal ruminations that we're privy to for all of the characters like they're all just very well explained where all of their motivations come from i mean you could say moody sure (laughs) roshar is a planet of big feelings (laughs) it's because they don't have as strong a gravity the feelings aren't bound to the earth they just fly they just fly feelings flying everywhere coming out Coming out your mouth hole. Oh, it's like our house between three o'clock and six o'clock. Oof. Lots of feelings. So many feelings. We get a little tidbit about Spren in this chapter too. Kaladin, as they're approaching the battle, he's talking about how there aren't any fear Spren around his men and that he was proud of that. And he explains that that doesn't mean that his men weren't afraid. They just weren't as panicked as the other bridge crews. So the so the fear spren went there instead. Yeah, okay. I remember that, but it didn't didn't put a pin in that one. So, so it kind of makes it sound like there's not like an inexhaustible amount of spren. And the spren are going to go where the strongest feelings are. So it's another little I- explanation as to why aren't there spren in certain situations or not. It, it depends largely on hydration. <laughs> and genetics. To how much spren you can produce. It's not this something you have a lot of control over. This is a judgment-free zone here. Yeah. <laughs> it only takes one spren. <laughs> you know, so, the, the quantity is not important. 
So chapter 33. What are we talking about? We're talking about cymatics. Oh, yeah. That's right. So in this, this is the chapter where Shalon walks around with a big metal thing swinging it around in her baggy sleeve going, who, me? Oh, I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> jingle, jangle, jangle when I walk. <laughs> I, I'm sure her safe pouch is, you know, not jangly. You don't look in a woman's safe pouch, Chad. You don't ask if there's something jingly in there. Listen, you don't you don't stare at their crotches either, but if you put 10 pounds of silverware in your pants, I feel like we would notice it every time you try to walk. <laughs> Swinging around her sleeve. Okay, first let me read the snapter. They changed even as we fought them, like shadows they were that can transform as the flame dances. Never underestimate them because of what you first see. There you go. There's your snapter. So in chapter 33, Shalan works on her plan not only to steal Yasna's soul caster, but to figure out how it works. She reviews the sketches that she has made of Yasna soul casting and even snoops in the books that Yasna has been reading. Then she flirts and eats jam with Cabsul, the hot ardent. Wow. <laughs> he gives her evidence that the Almighty exists in the form of cymatics. Cymatics turns out to be the study of patterns that sound makes when interacting with a physical medium. Did you know that already? No. Okay, good. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's a real thing. I, I didn't Google whether it was a real thing or not. Well, you you keep reading. I'm going to do some Googling. Google it. It sounds like a real thing. It comes up. Cymatics. From the ancient Greek meaning wave is a subset of modal vibration phenomena. Term coined by Jan Henry in, well, who was from 1904 to 1972. Typical surface of a plate diaphragm or membrane is vibrated Regions of maximum and minimum displacement are made visible with a thin coating of particles, paste, or liquid. So, there you go. It's a real thing. It's a thing. So what do you think of Capsule at this point? He's been in the book a couple of times. Up until the very end of the chapter, I'm liking this dude. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm aware of the disconnect between the fact that he's supposed to be some sort of spiritual leader some sort of priest-like figure and he's really like a, a kind of a s slightly sketchy uh horn dog like like <laughs> you know like i'm aware of that but i'm like oh he's likable mm -hmm. he's the kind of person and we've we've talked about this in our personal lives he's the kind of guy that if you're a guy you don't care that he's a little bit slimy, but you don't want him hanging out with your sister. <laughs> yeah. You all know that guy. Right? As Everyone a, knows yeah. someone like that. As a guy, I I know he's a scumball. I don't care. I'm not a woman. <laughs> I'll hang out with him, but I'm just not bringing him over to the house for dinner. <laughs> it's funny because you were making a joke about Dalinar being Jordan Catalano. <laughs> and... In my brain, always from the beginning, you know, Capsule was played by Jared Leto. Well, he, he, even though I, you know, he doesn't 
look like an Alethi, how an Alethi would. I'm still, he was Jared Leto with the floppy hair and the baggy sweaters. Except for Jordan Catalano had no personality. True. And this guy has a personality. (laughs) Ish. Kind of. He's got a plate with sand. I mean. Well, listen, I mean, everybody's got to have their shtick, you know? (laughs) Some guys wear a giant, like, Dr. Seuss hat. I brought you some. Oh, God. Right? Some guys always keep a cigarette tucked in behind their ear, even if they don't smoke. (laughs) Guys have their little shtick, and that's his. It's kind of kind of elaborate elaborate and of limited purpose but i'm not <laughs> not here to judge a game bro <laughs> so in this chapter we see shallan's devotion to her brothers and how it outweighs her love of learning and even her selfish ambition because we realize that really shallan she could just kind of ditch her family and have a good career and, and she probably would be, yeah. would be totally fine. Yasna would probably get her a, a rich, handsome husband and she could just peace out. I've seen her brothers. I think she should do that. <laughs> right. One of them enjoys killing animals for funsies. And he's the most stable one. Apparently. So, I mean... You know, I'm just saying consider it. Don't like, don't take that option off the table. But then we see how she's really kind of naive about Capsule. Yeah. I mean, you you just want to say, oh, honey. <laughs> I brought you some jam. <laughs> Here, let me feed it to you with my finger. You know but Yasna has kind of has like his number. Jam. Right. They like to lick Simberry jam off my finger. <laughs> no, but I'm but I'm I'm concerned about your soul. It's your soul. I swear I'll call. <laughs> I'm concerned about your your well being. <laughs> but Yasna has his number, it seems like. And she's got some pretty harsh words for him. And we see an interesting development with her, too, when Shalon goes and finds the books that she's seen Yasna reading. And one of them that she finds is a book of children's stories. And Shalon is baffled because Yasna is a versed Italian. So that's someone who is supposed to be trying to find the truth about the past. And so she's like, why? Why is she? What is she looking for in this book? I'm always perplexed when people are like, why is she like they're like hmm her job is to find out the truth of what happened in the past why is she always reading these history books i don't get it like i guess because this this is apparently like reading grimm's fairy tales i understand that. like it's so yeah. outside the realm of possibility that any of it would be true well i can tell you one thing's going to be true there's going to be some dark-eyed ability to, like, make people out of wood. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what that thing was with the boy who hid in a cave and the Voidbringers ate, right. some, this, uh, you know, a wooden effigy of him. But that's going to come back somehow. I don't know how, but it's going to come back somehow. That particular example. Hmm. All right. So there were... It's interesting to me, and this is sort of brings up... There were two 
things that sort of happened to me reading this section and reading this chapter. The first is I was sort of going through when we were talking about Shalon the first time in Kaladin, and I was like, it actually crossed my mind. I'm like, there's really like one of the things that we don't get in this series that we got in other series is we don't get like a lot of like, we don't get a lot of the things that the common people do, like culture that comes from the common people, common people's songs, children's stories, those sort of things are kind of missing. And so it was interesting to me that we got in this chapter and we find a book of children's tales. And I'm, uh, oh, okay, well, that's the beginning of something. But so far, everything has been entirely about the Alethi and what are the Alethi and Alethi nobility. And like, that's it. That's the only kind of perspective you get. And dark-eyed people are whatever. You know, no folk tales being passed down, nothing like that. You're looking at me like I'm forgetting a bunch, like this has all been mentioned and I'm forgetting it. Well, I think there's been a lot of mentions of in the flashbacks to Kaladin's childhood, at least of the common people's fear of the Voidbringers. And I can think of one scene where Kaladin's in the wagon and and the men are talking about Voidbringers being on the wind. And, and he's thinking back to stories that of things that the Voidbringers supposedly do. Okay, yeah. I was just thinking more like general stuff. But okay. It, but it was... Um, but that's a good point, and I had forgotten about that. It, it was it was interesting to me that I was thinking that, and then this book comes up of children's tales. But the bigger thing is that halfway through this chapter, I am building the world's largest ball of tinfoil you've ever seen. Oh. I've got so much tinfoil going through this chapter, I'm like, I figured something out. Oh my goodness. And then we get to the end of the chapter and it's like somebody came along and said, what are you doing? And slapped the tinfoil out of my hand oh, and no. said, shut up, you well, nerd. you still have to tell us what it is. So as we're having this conversation with Capsule and they start talking about Yasna and he starts trying to convince her to do things and give up information on Yasna, I'm like, We've never seen Yasna and Capsule in the same room together. <laughs> Yasna's Capsule. We just saw somebody who was a shapeshifter in the last section. I went back, I read through the last chapter we had with Capsule in it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nope, never in the same room together. That is amazing. That I is had, an amazing At the beginning of the section, I was like, Yasna's starting to get suspicious about people stealing her soul caster she's found a way to shapeshift into somebody and sent them in to see if shallan's on the up and up oh my god that's amazing and then yasna walks in the room with him there and i'm like son of a bitch (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i knew it was like a completely far-fetched thing but but in my brain, I wanted it to be real. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> totally wanted that to be real. <laughs> so I was pretty disappointed by the end of the chapter. <laughs> Man, I wish that was real. So uh, a couple of other things that I noted here. A three-sided symbol, a symbol with you know all these triangle patterns is what they found on 
Luesh. And a three-sided symbol is the symbol for the city of Colon, like a series of, of mm-hmm. triangles. Don't know that it means anything, but but it's interesting that those sort of match up and we're starting to get all these things happening at the same moment, at the same time. They're being brought up at the same mm-hmm. time. Capsule says that uh, Ritharu is a myth, but Dalinar's visions say, no, that's true. Right. Because Ritharu is the city that is where all of the... Radiance. Radiance are based out of mm-hmm. in his vision. Mm-hmm. Interesting that that city appears to have been wiped from existence. And then the other thing is that the language symmetry, the idea of language symmetry mm-hmm. as being deliberate and a reference to things being holy, mm-hmm. I picked up on here, which is the first verified prediction I've made in this mm-hmm. series. I like it. Because we were talking about all the palindromes in the beginning, and I said there's something religious in nature tied to the palindromes. And I still think it's ludicrous that she carries a soul caster in her baggy sleeve. We don't know how baggy it is. She's trying to smuggle out all the family silver well, think in of her it. baggy she, pants. She carries her, people carry their money in their sleeve, too. So she's also got a pouch of spheres rattling around in there as well. So a soul caster is basically like carrying a couple of rings, you know, like, like rings and a bracelet. All right, fine. You and your logic. (laughs) Men's pockets are different from women's pockets. We've discussed this. Women get pockets. Women sometimes get like half pockets. You get to read, then you get the right to vote. Now you're asking for pockets. What the hell? (laughs) Next, you're going to want to be paid the same as us. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I thought the semantics, by the way, were pretty convincing. Right? Right? I mean, so in the real world, I mean, I didn't know they they called it cymatics and it was actually a study, mm-hmm. but I've seen where they have like iron shavings on right. the speaker and, you know, they flop around and they make patterns. Right. But they don't make elaborate geographical patterns that correspond to cities that exist, that predate the existence of the study. So to me, that seems pretty, pretty damn convincing. Also, nobody in a fantasy book especially like this, should be an atheist. It's just a bad idea. Is it like be, being in a horror movie and you, saying you'll be right back? Exactly. You're going you're gonna to be proven wrong. Like, <laughs> you know, it's there's no way that Yasna's right. We shall see. Girl's wrong. <laughs> Doesn't mean that all the, all, all the ardents and what they've got in their brain is right, but she's not right either. We shall see. Any more notes for this chapter? I got nothing. All right. All right, are you ready to get into some listener interactions? Let's do it. All right, on our Facebook group page, Brian McClure says, first-time readers of The Way of Kings, what do you think of the new epigraphs for this section? Epigraphs. It's snapters from now on because that's that's just better i'm sorry we're right and human history of the english language is wrong okay what do you think of the epigraphs for this section 
I I like them. I, I mean, feel we talked like about what we think they're about. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah. I, I feel like they're a little on the nose, whereas I feel like the ones from the last part were much more cryptic and right. difficult to figure out. This, I feel like, is a little, I don't want to say heavy-handed, but just a little bit more obvious. Right. But given how confusing this book has been so far, I'm not upset about that. Yes, so if you would like to weigh in on what you think of the epigraphs, get on the Facebook page and get on that. That's right. Um, Theo Graham Brown says, among many other things, Theo posted a, a nice long post for us, but he did say, uh, I'm hoping the Duke makes some kind of reference to the Outer Limits or maybe Doctor Who Series 6 with the silence because... Oh, oh come on. Look at that. So I don't know that he, w- he was a big fan of the mystery salad that we had this week i feel like a lot of people are getting frustrated yeah i know felicity's mentioned it susan king's mentioned it uh you know feeling like there's just an awful lot of threads but we're not really weaving a blanket right and again you know this is a very long series and it it is a slow burn but i can tell you the threads do all get picked up. I, I feel like this is when you told me when you first started reading this that you were like, I'm out. I, yeah, I, I didn't. I think I made it through the first, the end of the first book. And I was kind of like, well, maybe not quite to the end. And I was kind of like, I, what is he doing? doing? I don't even know. This guy's just talking about crabs <laughs> for like 800 pages. I can't. But I was glad that I stuck it through. So we're going to soldier on together. And you, good you, listeners. You did warn us. It's a slow build. It's a slow build. You did warn us. But it's every detail of this world and this plot and every part of this story is just meticulously put into place. And it's like, I, I can't describe it. It's like when you get a crossword puzzle done. Like every square filled, that feeling of like, <sighs> yeah, but it doesn't take me as long to do a cross a crossword. Well, that's true. It's not three thousand pages. You know, I mean, but imagine that you minutes did like and I'm done. <laughs> giant crossword puzzle, like a wall size, like a wall size crossword. I don't puzzle. think I would. That <laughs> that's where you and I are different. <laughs> Just hang in there is what I'm saying. Okay, all right. And, and I, I don't want to make it sound like there's not a satisfying conclusion at the end of the book, because there is. It's coming. Eric Algar wrote a post that is a brilliant parody of the Spin Doctor's song, Two Princes, about the high princes uh, in Alethkar. It's one of the best things I've ever read. It was it was pretty damn impressive. It's amazing. I was I was very 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 pleased to see it. So get on the Facebook group page and check that out for sure. Oh, good stuff. I'm sorry, I'm reading it again and I'm just laughing. It's it's, <laughs> it's quite good. It's quite good. I don't have anything from Twitter because Twitter is essentially defunct now, but uh, we'll keep cracking away with the powers that be over there and see if we can get our Twitter account restored. And that is it for interactions. We can't read them all. So we're hitting, hitting the, the general notes and the, the sense that we're getting from the community overall. Are you ready for predictions? 
Yes, predict it. All right. First prediction, Luesh did not die of natural causes. All right. Bit of a softball. That's a gimme. Bit of a softball, yeah. They talk about uh, Shalon's dad. I can't remember his name. Lynn or something like that. Devar. Anyway, Shalon's dad. They talk about him potentially wanting to challenge to become a high prince. Yes. I think it's probably a larger conspiracy than that. It seems to me that they suspected that there were shard blades and they gave him that soul caster specifically so that he could find a shard blade. Hmm. And now Shalon has the shard blade and I suspect that the folks who are trying to hunt them down don't realize that. Mm-hmm. So that's my suspicion there. Thetakar is the person behind capturing Seth. Okay. I think that Parshendi, excuse me, I think that Parshman specifically are little baby void bringers. <laughs> and I think the Parshendi represent the next sort of evolutionary step mm-hmm. in that chain and that they're all related. Okay. I think that Gavilar was close to discovering that the Voidbringers were real and that's why he was killed. All right. I think that Kaladin's mom is related to Teravangian. Good one. I think that Kaladin does get more punishment than just getting beaten. I don't know if it'll be because of this event or something else, but I think it's they're going to hang him up and leave him out in a storm. Mm-hmm. And that that's going to be how he becomes aware of his powers. All right. Those are my predictions. Those are some good predictions. It's like you had a crystal ball. Oh, don't tell me that means they're right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're fine, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Do you have anything else? I don't. Thanks for being with us tonight. You can find us on our website at thedukeandduchesspodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. at least for now. That may change. You can find us on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess Podcast and on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess on our Facebook group page at groups backslash the D&D group. That's all our social media stuff where you can hunt us down. We may... We may put together a YouTube page. It might happen. No promises. Also, next week is chapters 34 through 40. And get your copy of Saga Trade Paperback 1 ready. That will be coming out eventually. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm just saying get ready. (laughs) All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye, baby,
Bidip, 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 bidip